running a small business can be tough. I mean, you're not just the CEO, you're also the marketing, the finance manager, and everything else in between. Technology, however, and digital tools can play a big part in taking on some of these tasks, giving you that much-needed headspace to focus on running your business. But it's hard to know where to start, which tools are right for you, how do you go about integrating them, and when is the right time to make the investment. MasterCard's Strive UK programme has been set up to make it easy for small business owners to access the support needed to digitise, whether that's incorporating accountancy tools or new digital payment methods. Through free guidance, helpful tools and personalised one-to-one mentoring, Strive is empowering small business owners across the UK to succeed. For more on how Strive UK could help your business, visit mastercard.co.uk slash drive. Okay, here's the show. Beautiful misfits have a sense of the other in their bones. On some deep level, they feel they don't quite fit the system. Many never vocalise this feeling. They simply embody it in how they live as they push against the norms. Others, however, speak out. They're vocal about questioning the accepted narrative. And when they do, their internal sense of other can be angrily projected back onto them by others. They're mad, angry, they're dismissed or ridiculed, and it's hard. Feeling other inside yourself is one thing. Being vociferously othered and critiqued by those around you is another. And the space where this plays out constantly in real time today is in the world of social media. Put one step wrong and the pack will descend on you. Because the strange thing is this. There are a lot of people giving real talk on social media right now. They're calling stuff out, opening up about their lives. But listen closely and you'll find many are still talking within accepted boundaries. They're adding their voice to what others are talking about, joining the throng of the issue that's top of mind. Only the rare few really push the narrative and confront it. My guest today is one of them. In 2015, Candice Brathwaite decided to start posting on Instagram about being a mother. Family life, her kids, that kind of thing. What was different? Candice was a black woman carving a space in a mummosphere dominated by a sea of white mothers. She called the dominant version of motherhood beige, not just in terms of skin tones, but personality. And instead of just focusing on the fun stuff, Candice was prepared to radically disrupt the beige. Over the past seven years, she's raised her head above the parapet again and again. She's spoken about motherhood, abortion, fertility issues, and specifically, she's explored her experience as a black woman in a society that often doesn't see them. A black mother in a world where they are five times more likely to die in childbirth than white women, and the emotional impact of thorny issues such as colorism. All this has made Candice a best-selling author, a fate in itself, given that last year, only 1.8% of the UK's best-selling 1,000 authors were black. But it's also provoked highly public backlash at times. Despite all this, though, she approaches it all, the fun, the light, the complex and challenging, with positivity. My version of activism is rooted in being joyful, Candice once said. And for me, this is key. Beautiful misfits challenge the status quo. They know the system is broken. They get angry sometimes. They kick back. But fundamentally, 
they challenged the status quo with a sense of hope that somehow, somewhere, the words they leave scattered in their insightful paths will take root behind them and grow into something bigger. They are brave. They forge a way into a more beautiful future for others to follow. They are fearless. This is Beautiful Misfits, and I'm Mary Portas. Welcome, Candice. Gosh, why was I going to burst into tears? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's oh, true. Wow. And why you're here, my darling girl. Yeah. I always like to start at the beginning because I see this beautiful woman in front of me and I'm going, why didn't I put more lippy on? <laughs> why didn't I get my nails done? Why didn't I put my rings on? It's been a bit of a heavy week. So I was just like, oh, do you know, I'm jumping in the shower and walking out the door. You look stunning. And I always like to start at the beginning. Can you just take me back to your childhood? Because I don't know much about that. And, and <sighs> where did you grow up? What was home like? I was born and raised in Brixton, South London. I was raised by my maternal grandparents because my mum went back to work pretty early on. I was about eight months and she returned to work. What was her work? What did she do? She was, I think she was a sales assistant for a shoe company back then. My dad was very early in his banking career they broke up shortly before I was born and he lived in Walthamstow and him and I had a very great relationship. But my granddad was mugged shortly before I was born and he was left blind in one eye. It was a very violent mugging. And back then um, they had the line deemed unfit for work. So he couldn't work anymore. And my nan went out to work every day. And she paid the mortgage. And my granddad became like a stay-at-home husband, forward slash dad, to me. And I lived with them till I was about eight, nine years old. And well, so your mother would come back to this house, would yes, she? Yes, yeah, yeah, every evening. So we lived there. My mum and I lived there. And my granddad would have prepared dinner and walked me home from school and gone to all my parent-teacher meetings. So granddad was like dad, Monday to Friday. Granddad had a great relationship with my dad, who'd pick me up at Friday and drop me back on Sunday. And it was this very journeyful childhood. I, I now just see myself always with a backpack on, ready to go for some reason. And every summer holiday, my nan and granddad would take me away with them. So I would travel to their home of Barbados every year or we'd go to New York in the spring half term. But I really saw my maternal grandparents as very, very central to my life. And I was an only child up until I was about eight years old, which made for a very interesting dynamic when you've got all this attention on you for almost a decade and then someone else comes into the fold and you're like, oh, so was this someone else, your mother's child? My mother's child, so... And so she got had a new partner? Yeah, she had a new partner. And um, I'm my dad's only child. So that, again, was very interesting. I'd go from a space where I was now competing for someone's attention and weekends and some holidays, it's just me and dad down there doing whatever. Interesting that we were using the word misfit because I felt that energy really early on. Mm. But my golden egg was that that energy was always thoroughly supported by my dad and my granddad. So the two men in my life were like, question it again and again. Do you have any more questions? Are you sure about that? Do you want to investigate that for yourself? Whereas the wider black community still till this day struggle with the idea that children can have their own opinions and or question adults. 
Talk to me about that. So is it when you talk about that, is it like you're sort of quiet until you're a certain age? Yeah. So the, the, the wisdom is in the parents or the grandparents, yes. and what do you kind of know? The vibe back then, and it's still it's still terminology that's banded about now, it's to be seen and not heard. It's interesting you say that because I was reading a book by Viv Albertine, who I love, and she talked about who set the tone in the home. Now, mm. So when I grew up, it was very much my father, you know, like uh, the masculinity was that wait till your father father gets home or shush, you know, yeah. stop playing up in front of your dad. And, you know, he was looked after, had his tea mm. separately and, you know. And then she talked about today that often it's the children because we so put children's priorities so high <laughs> that their energy and their happiness or joy sets the tone in the family. Mm. What do you think to that when you have you seen that with friends, families and kids compared to what it was like when you were a child? Oh, definitely. I find myself now walking on eggshells around my eldest, she really sets the mood of the house at the moment. Yes. If she comes in in a bad mood, everyone's like, oh, yeah. it's not going to be a good evening. And that, yeah, I've never thought about it like that. But, yeah, the children really dictate yeah. the mood in the house and we are very conscious of them coming to the dinner table and having their say and not feeling like they need to shy away or keep a secret. Because what happened with the whole be seen and not heard... Not necessarily in my life, but in many lives of those that I know, abuse, physical and emotional, went unchecked because you weren't allowed to say anything. And then even if you did get the chance to say anything, having someone believe you, that was a new trial in itself. And so it was a very hush-hush kind of mentality, whereas one thing that really sticks out to me, my granddad, bless his soul, but looking back, he was quite insane... I remember the O.J. Simpson trial happening and my granddad getting me out of bed at like 1am because obviously this trial is on American time on a school night and being like, come and watch some of this. I think this will be really important. It's going to make history. And I think you can build some opinions around this that we can discuss later on in the week. Wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> When you talked about, was the stuff that happened to you in your childhood that you thought, I can't talk about? Yeah, my childhood was filled with, I'm going to be careful here, my childhood was filled with a lot of disruption mm. and a lot of, not towards me, but I was surrounded by a lot of anger and violence. I was very privy to that. Mm. And um, there was so much of that that I knew because the other rule in our community is this is family business. So I wasn't going to go to school and, you know, a teacher's like, why are you tired? I wasn't going to go to school and be like, well, you know, I've been listening to so-and-so argue. Mm. I, I kept that to myself. And as I got older and went to secondary school, I then started to have those discussions with my peers. And so many of us were in the same boat. So, yeah, those things absolutely affected me. I really respect, especially my granddad and my dad, I really respect how they tried tried really hard to build a protection or a fantasy land. I, I can see how they tried hard to do that, even though nine times out of ten they both failed. They really did try to protect me from certain things, but I saw a lot, and I saw a lot really early on, hmm. to be fair. Yeah. And it's also you feel it, don't you, as well, you know. Yes. So this fantasy land that you talked about was probably, you know, I, I don't know how it was expressed, but you're, hey, let's go here, let's do this, yeah. it's fine. But underneath, your little heart was probably quite fearful. Always, 
I've been in therapy now for three years. And Is it working? <laughs> it, oh, it's, it's working to the point that sometimes I'm like, oh, no. I think I'm done with this. And then we have a session and I'm like, OK, we've barely scratched the surface. But one thing that's been coming up recently is my therapist pointing out how hypervigilant I am and how I am just ready to read any room. Because that was a survival tactic as a child. You get into a space... I can kind of feel what's happened. I can feel the energy of the room. Can I say I've had a good day? Or is that going to cheese someone else off? Yeah. And, you know, you're, you're doing this from like seven, eight years old. It becomes a really bad habit. In my adult life, it has often made me feel that I need to pick up the energy in a room. And the other thing, I was talking about this uh, with Jude Kelly and I was saying that what happens is, and I understand totally what you're saying, is that I find and I, that women essentially want to try and keep harmony. We mm. we are not the people that disrupt generally. I mean, there's many that I'm sure, and I'm sure I've had many around where I have to. But generally, mm. we try and want to keep harmony. And that role is exhausting in itself because you don't ever care for yourself. Do you think you've cared for you? I'm starting to... And that, feel, that feels very sad and very heavy because I'll be 35 next year, which is not old by any means, but that's a late time to start caring for I'm oneself. Later. I'm later. Oh, OK. <laughs> don't, don't bash yourself up. I'm like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm putting my needs first, even if that means disruption has to happen. But disruption that you feel, I will be able to explain this and I won't do this yeah, by hurting anybody. Exactly. I won't do this by hurting anyone. Fitting into societal norms or standards plays into your experience with beauty as a young woman. And in your book, Sister, Sister, which I loved, you wrote about being persuaded to bleach your skin. Yeah. I, I'm just... The scalp burns you suffered from chemically straightening your hair mm -hmm. and the fact that when you decided to shave your head, several barbers refused to do it because they didn't want to tax your femininity. I'm going to laugh because one said, what happened? You turned lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was your father's remark that was the deepest, you know, when he said, of yeah. someone who was just great influence and love in your life, mm. uh, good luck trying to find a fella uh, yeah. with a look like that. Yeah. Where do we start on that? We start with my mother is a very lighter skinned black woman and my tone is more my maternal grandmother's. I've got a much deeper, darker tone to my skin. And within the black community and in some sections of the Asian community, something called colorism is really, really rife. So your beauty is registered or it's on a chart based on the lightness of your skin. The lighter your skin, the more attractive you're deemed because your skin is closer to whiteness. Well, I was chatting with our team yesterday and we are going through this and even everyone from the, the Supremes who changed the face mm. of music, these incredible women who could have dominated and set a standard for all of us. You know, they straightened and relaxed their hair mm -hmm. to Beyonce, yep. blonding mm. and straightening. And somehow they still pushed into those societal norms mm -hmm. where beauty was instead of going, let's do our own thing yeah. because we are extraordinarily yeah. talented. We are showing you new <laughs> forms of art and music. We're leading the way. We're deeply sexy, yet still, still, mm. what you talked about, they fell into. Yeah. And I remember once even seeing an interview with Beyonce's dad where he said, I'm telling you on record that if Beyonce was darker, she wouldn't have the career she had. 
Her own dad was like, that is just the matter of a fact. It could be the same talent, the same voice, the same beauty and the same body with darker skin. She wouldn't have been allowed to ascend the way she has. So, right, colorism. I got to be very, very clear in my house, in my dad's house, um, colorism was never a thing. I was never made to feel that I was less than. I didn't even really notice colorism until very early on in primary school. My best friend at the time was a very light skinned girl. And I remember like during games of kiss chase, boys absolutely wouldn't chase me. And then one day it just came up. One boy was like, you're too dark, man. You're too black. Was he black? He was as dark as me. <laughs> That's always the kicker, but that's a different conversation. So when I started to hear that about seven, and so now I'm starting to understand this. I remember once I was on a bus and a black guy, this happened when I was about seven as well, a black guy who was seemingly not all in his own mind, but he bent down to me and he was like, oh my God, you're so ugly. You're so Seriously? ugly. On my children, you're so ugly. What man is ever going to want you? You're too black. We are on a very packed bus. And the only reason I'm separated from my mum is because the two free seats were apart. And he's leaning so close. I'm assuming the woman next to me could hear him, but she didn't intervene. Again, that's a different conversation. So you're hearing all of these things on repeat. And you're not even a preteen. And then you go to secondary school where, you know, the lid is really pulled off the pot. And boys are like, no, I can't like you because you're too... So there was that. And so for me, I sometimes think that the way I look now or my style choices now was me going so far left because deep down I felt like there was no other option. Like I wasn't going to bleach my skin and I'm not particularly good at wigs and weaves and, and brushing of hair. <laughs> So I was like, right, if this is the form I'm in for this lifetime, just go all the way that way, you know? Just And talk to me where all the way that way is because it looks pretty good to me, but just talk <laughs> to me where all the way that way is. All the way that way, again, it really did all start with the hair in the black community. Okay, so here's another thing. If you have a complexion like mine, but you have a looser curl and your hair's a little longer, that can, like, put you up a little bit in this beauty race, you know? And I didn't have that. I had very thick Afro hair that would break a comb. So I didn't have that on my side. And I remember I was 17 years old. I was in New York. I was in Queens and I was crossing a road and a black woman stepped out in front of a taxi cab with a shaved head and... On everything I know, it felt like the entire world had stopped for her. Yeah. I was like, it's not even the red light while you're walking. Like, There was just so much power oozing out of her every pore. And I thought about nothing else the entire trip. And the day we got home, I didn't tell anyone in my family. I was like, I am going on the hunt of whatever it is she had. And the only thing I could connect it to was her shaved head. But that shaved head was her expressing her truth from right within, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And that power, it's interesting because you said, I came back and I wanted to have the power that she mm. had. You didn't say I wanted to have the haircut she had. <laughs> the power, the power. And all I could see amongst everyone crossing the road, I was like, hair, hair, wigs, weave. She's the only one who was wearing her hair so short she can't hide the spark behind her eyes. It's all you can see. 
Yes. So my question is, that spark was coming, do you think, from within and that her short hair was an expression of who she truly Absolutely. was? Absolutely. Okay. To talk to me what you think true beauty is, because I'm going to let you do that before, without me sticking my nose in. <gasps> what is true because... beauty? Mm. It is just that light because it's hard to explain. Now the women I meet who I think are the most beautiful, they just have an energy that is seemingly unexplainable or they have a draw, they're like a magnet. And all of these women look so different, so it's hard to say, oh, it's the hair or it's the clothes or it's her body type. It's an energy. Right, so which is what I'm going to get to you about because you write in here and I'm guessing that you are deeply connected to your core and your truth. That, mm. That's where I'm thinking it's coming from. Yeah. You think it is, do <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to have found. So if I had a pound for every time someone asked me about manifesting, because you looked at that woman and you went, I am going to manifest that <laughs> or whatever way, I wouldn't need to energy cleanse my crystals under a new moon or write down my attentions weekly anymore. I'd have all the money I needed to buy every desire my heart required and mm. then some. And you talk about in here... Perhaps it's because I'm writing this during the pandemic, we're living in the upside down, or maybe it's because the vast number of corrupted politicians and contrived policies, get on there, girl, remind us that hell is a lot closer than we think. But manifestation or big magic, positive thinking, the secret or whatever you want to call it, is enjoying a bigger moment than those totally useless but oh-so-chic petite Jacquemus Chiquito bags. Okay. Whenever I speak or write about using LOA, the law of attraction, or woo-woo to my newbies, my comment section, direct messages and emails all simultaneously go nuclear because no matter who or where you are, the idea of improving your life in a spiritual way is very appealing. Mm. That's a beautiful message. Yeah. Right. So I'm a lot older than you and Mm. you're saying that you're looking at self-care. When I wanted to start this and I talk about spirituality or connecting with your soul, connecting with your deep truth, Mm -hmm. being absolutely the freedom Mm -hmm. that allows you to go out into the world and be and shine your light and create your own power. Mm. I get people going, you've got to be a bit careful on that. Mm. (laughs) So let's talk about it, Candice Brathwaite. (laughs) I'm very intrigued as to why people still fear this conversation when these books sell in the millions when even Oprah said many times um you know her gut told her to move away from that very you know the whisper exactly the the whisper whisper. and you know the whisper kept telling her move away from the Jerry Springerish type stories and start talking about the soul and spirituality and we look at how well that message has done and yet people are still fearful of talking about it and I'm just not for numerous reasons I think we give far more space to various religions and gods which I'm very respectful of anyone's choice or their beliefs so why am I not allowed to talk about mine or how my spirituality makes me feel or how I think it makes my life better Moving away from that and... Don't move away from that. Well, actually, I want to come back to it. (laughs) I want to talk to about that because 
you are a young woman and, mm -hmm. and you have achieved such great things, which I'm going to, we're going to talk about. Mm. But when did you realize that there was a depth, there was a, whatever we call it, whether it's soul, whether it's mm. your spirituality, whether it's your frequency, as yeah. uh, Oprah calls it as well, that you connect to? When did you realize that that was the strongest part that actually fueled your life more than what society mm. and all those politicians mm. and all the the influences that we all grew up believing we should be mm. or that's what we attained. When did you think that came? I think it came in drips and jabs. The yeah. first drip was my dad died when I was 20 years old. He got the flu and I was an au pair in Naples at the time. He got the flu. Wednesday spoke to dad. He was like, oh, I'm really bunged up. Saturday morning, he died in A&E, in the waiting area of A&E. Something shifted in me then, obviously my love for him and my grief. But also, I felt, that I've never said this before, I felt as if I was in grave danger in Naples. I can't put my finger on it. But I felt as if I was being watched. I just had an energy of something's not great and now he's been dead over 10 years now so I've had time to like really wind this over and there's a tiny part of me that is like in some spiritual way I feel as though his life was cut short to save my own I deeply feel that because within 12 hours I was back on the flight to the UK and trying to work my way through grief and burying him so there was that the second time I felt it, I had my daughter, I ended up getting postpartum sepsis from an infected C-section wound, having to go back to hospital. The surgeons are like, if we don't operate, you'll be dead by morning. That was the next turn. And I remember them, they were about to put me under. And I, I remember thinking to myself, gosh, if you can pull yourself back from this, you have to understand that something bigger is at play here. You know, as sad as this moment is, if you can get out the other side, pay attention to these pulls. And then smaller drips started to happen. And then I got to a point, and this is the thing I found with people and the law of attraction, and I've never found it happen any other way. It got to a point where I was so low. I was so low. My back was so against the wall. My relationship didn't feel right. I felt like I was struggling with motherhood, didn't have a pot to piss in. I was like, right, I'm going to give this a try then. There is nothing else. There is no one giving me a hand for help. There is no money or food there. I see no avenue for opportunity. OK, let's go inside. And within weeks... Mm. Within weeks of really sitting with myself, of being honest in journaling about what I want and how I thought I could get there, different avenues started to appear. Magical emails, doors opening. And once you see it, it's very addictive. Because I just sat there and I was like, I had the key all along. I had the key to not just immediately change my life because it doesn't happen like that, but I had the key that allowed me to believe that change is possible. And that key, and, you know, I went through it a couple of times, like you, where it was like, I just cannot get up from this. Mm -hmm. But that key, when it comes, is just like this gorgeous warm bath and you feel I can always sit in you or I can fall back on you because you're there and you're right, it doesn't come out all straight away. Yeah. But something happens, a little light 
sunshines or a door opens and you meet someone and then another door opens yeah. and you realise it was there all, all along. along. You just have to be receptive. You have to be willing to accept the warmth. I think we live in a world that is so jagged and then more jagged dependent upon the body in which you live and where you were born. So it's really hard to even allow that warmth in because you've been told by the policies, by the system, by beauty standards, not worthy, not entitled, can't have that, not for you, face doesn't fit, body, you know, the list goes on. and So it's really hard to let that warmth in. And when I started to do that and I watched how my joy and zest for life multiplied, I was like, this is the book I'm going to bang till the day I die. Uh, well, I'm with you, my <laughs> darling. I'm with you. And this is why you're sitting in the studio today. It was really interesting about your father. Um, you lost him in your 20s and mm. very, very fast. And I was, I was reading and I thought I wanted to read it to you. Rilke, who's a beautiful philosopher poet from the 20s. I read him every day. I pick up mm. a book and I start my day with reading him. And I found this one, I thought, and he talks, he recognises that death or people we love is the greatest challenge of life. Mm. And his solace is, I think, pretty uncommon, but it's, I find it deeply uplifting and necessary because he believed that we shouldn't attempt to evade it, um, that it contributes to our achievement, fulfilment and self-knowledge. And he insists as well, which I love, we shouldn't aspire to being consoled, but be curious mm. to explore that loss as an inner landscape. Mm. Yeah. And of course it's hard, but it's just come to be what I do. I think even yesterday after a good therapy session, I was doing the very human thing. So please, I'm not judging anyone. The very human thing of going, well, wh where's my piece of the pie? Am I successful? You know, you do all those totally. things. Where are my Still awards? Compare. Where are my accolades? Totally. All of that. <laughs> had this conversation with my Where's therapist. my MBA? Where's, Where's my OB? All of you do, all of that. Oh, totally. And then I remembered when I was about eight years old, I was having a bike ride with my dad. We pulled over for some ice cream and we started to have a conversation. And I said, you know, Dad, one day I think I want to tell stories. I think I want to write stories. And he's licking on the ice cream and he sighs and he's like, you know, when I was your age, I wanted to be a sports writer. I wanted to be a writer so bad. But I was a black boy coming up in the 60s and 70s, not an option. And I had to hold back tears with my therapist last night when I was like, well, look at that for a timeline. Mm. He's not here to see it, but to know that in the span of 30, 40 years, we as a legacy, as an ancestral lineage have gone from not an option to Sunday Times bestseller. Candies, get a fucking grip, babe. Yeah. <laughs> You've done good. Get, get, get a grip. grip. <laughs> <laughs> because the truth is, if someone has said that to you and said, OK, Candice, little eight-year-old sitting having the ice cream, this is where you're going to end up. You go, what? Get out of here. Get out of get here. Get out of here. That also, is insane. Though, if they had told me the pain that would have put me on this journey, I would have been a lollipop lady. Mm. If yeah. we were told... Mm. The pain that gets to pull you back to then throw you into the place you want to be, you're not going to do it. No, which is 
quite frankly, and so many reasons why people stay safe in life, yeah. but it's not safe because it just suppresses the soul, yeah. doesn't it? Why people stay in marriages, why they stay in jobs. Yeah. And you look, and I often do this, and I don't mean it in any other way, but I sometimes see them on a tube or mm. uh, on the when I'm walking down the road and you think there is just a light that's been diminished yeah. in you. And what you're doing each day, <laughs> and doesn't matter how hard it is, and sometimes it is, we were on this journey and we know it's the right one and we love it and we're on the path and sometimes we fall badly off. Because <laughs> you see someone else, you go, oh, what does she want? What? And then I have to go, yeah, yeah. Go back, go back in. But the risks and the challenges you took and mm-hmm. that's why you're there. You were working in marketing, in yeah. publishing, as a publisher before you moved into the influencer space. So first of all, you were in Penguin, weren't you? Yeah. Very white middle class. How did that happen? <laughs> Not being funny. Were you one of the... Uh, was it because they went, right, let's get a bit diverse here? Exactly. Yeah. So again, you know those little nuggets I said that just appeared? Had a two-year-old at home, really wanted to work in publishing, no degree. I'm a GCSE babe. I left school after that. So publishing with no degree and no nepotism, you're not getting anywhere. Yeah. All of a no sudden, network. No, you're not getting it. All of a sudden, I'm online and I see an advert that Penguin are running a competition and they want to open up the publishing gates to people that don't have degrees. Good on you, Penguin. Oh, I was in there like a shot. Women did that, by the way. Uh, you know that. I, no doubt about no, it. No, I know they did. They're, they're my publishers. <laughs> Thank you. Like, life-changing. I was in there like a shot, got the job. Whilst I was doing the job, I spent most of my day on the phone to, they were called bloggers then. And I was like, how much do you charge to promote a title? And when I heard the figures, and this is 2013, 14, I said, no, 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 I'm in the wrong job. But <laughs> but it's going to get me to where I want to go. I was like, but you can't leap yet, kid. Yeah. Like, start making notes. Start seeing where building an online platform could take you. And I knew, when I used to have really bad days at work, we all did, as much as I wanted to cry, I did laugh because I used to sit there, Mary, and I, know, I mean this so deeply, knowing that one day I'd walk back in the door as an author. There was not yeah. a shadow of a doubt. So when someone was a bit narky or something didn't go right, I just used to sit there and think, it's fine. In 10 years, this will be a very different conversation. <laughs> you know, but I don't know about you, you don't say those things out loud because, again, people go, you're crazy. Mm. Or there's no, we don't see scope for that. There's no opportunity for that. You're really crazy. So I, I spoke less. And one day, I think childcare fell through with my daughter and I just quit. I was like, I actually can't manage this. She's two. I need to be at home. It almost made me break up with my fella because me having a job allowed us to breathe a little, like go to the cinema. Me quitting brought us right back down to literally just being dependent on his wage. And I have so much respect for him blindly agreeing to my dream. Yeah. So much respect for him getting up every day, sometimes trudging through the snow to go to work whilst I'm at home fussing with a second-hand camera or trying to learn how to edit because in my gut I'm like, "This, this blogging space is about to tip into something we can't believe nor expect. I just knew that. And working in publishing allowed me to identify that the money we were usually giving to magazines for adverts, we were now turning over to individuals. 
It was such a shift, though, wasn't it? I mean, it was such a major shift yeah. in the way that the world of media worked from us buying magazines mm. and the big brands putting their dosh towards it. For you to be able to see that mm. and have spent a relatively short time in publishing and go and see that was just incredible. And also, you were not seeing images of black mm. women at that time, were you, really? None. You moved into what you called an influencer role, which I hate the sound of that. Mm. Don't you? I mean, influencer. (laughs) Oh, I'm an influencer. What are you influencing? What are you influencing? I know. (laughs) But you influence good. You influence the change, and that's what's beautiful. But you also do it through, you know, the social media platform where there are a lot of influencers who aren't making change Mm. or good happening. So it's a kind of a difficult title to sit with. So there you are with Mm. this two-year-old, not making any money, little camera, what, on your phone, going, here I am, chatting away, (laughs) no one listening. No one listening, no (laughs) followers, but also also being very begrudgeful of how one kind of woman got to own an entire market. Right, and this one kind of woman was white middle-class nuclear families yeah. and from a, you saw the gap and go, what, what is that what, about? What is that about? Right. Well, that was society again. This yeah. is the face and this is acceptable mm-hmm. and you went back into your little soul and went, actually, I know something in there. There's a little message in here yeah. that keeps coming up. It just kept niggling away and, oh, wow. You can't look back and regret the path. I don't. I think it, it was way more painful and troublesome than I've ever allowed myself to express. Mm. It was a harsh space full of so much bullying and backbiting and undercutting. And of course, this one tiny black woman comes in. And I feel the tension literally as I walk into a room. But I also understand that they understand that they can't not accept me. That's very blatant. Yes, because this is them saying, I know that this is, you know, I have to accept because that mm. is the right PC thing to do. Yeah. But deep inside they're thinking, who's who this the upstart? Hell, who, who does she, who think, does she, she think she is? Yeah. You know. And so I, just explain what you're doing because you, you're coming in and you're actually coming out with a completely different voice on mothers. Yeah. You know? So tell me I'm how you I'm talking about them. the fact that, you know, back then some days it, was, it literally was a choice between nappies or topping up the gas meter or not being able to access NCT because because I wasn't then in that tax bracket or, you know, taking my kid to a really cheap shop to get clothes. Just the motherhood that I understood. You know, I'm not saying that their version was wrong, but it was overwhelmingly well-to-do, very positive, you know, and that just wasn't my truth. And I felt like there should have been space for various versions of motherhood. This then led to the attention of events and brands who were like, oh, you know, come down to this event. And so I'm then meeting these women. And like I say, I can cut the tension in the atmosphere with a knife, but it's all... And then, and this is where I made the mistake, very human error, everyone's going to make it. I made the mistake of thinking some of those people were my friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Classic Pisces candies. Like you're smiling at me. I'm taking this at face value. You're, you know, you're friendly. You've, you've made me feel like you're listening to me in that moment. This is my friend. You keep inviting me to things. We have a few drinks. This is my friend. We swap numbers. We're on WhatsApp. This is my friend. Ah. <laughs> So then the friends turn, don't they, the the so-called friends. And talk to me about that. So here you were in this marketplace of influencers, white, middle, you know, class, Mm. white mothers. 
And your experiences around childbirth, well, hang on a minute, it's a bit different. You know, I nearly died, first of all. I'm actually, money is ridiculously tight. I want to talk about truth Mm. and I want to talk about being a black mother as well. And abortion, you talked about, Mm. really outspoken about some of the big taboos. So tell me when these people that were your friends, what happened then? What happened, I think the biggest... It was a very public scandal. I, uh, the queen bee of the mummy blogging scene at that time. Who had huge amounts of followers. Huge. Mm. I think around half a million at the mm. time. Mm. Was found out to be going on websites where that are just created so you can hate online influencers or, or even celebrities. She had created a fake name. Mm-hmm. And she was operating on this page under a fake name. And it came to pass that the things she was saying about her quote unquote friends were exposed. I was privy to this maybe two or three days before it ended up on the cover of every newspaper. People started DMing me, looking back in this very horrible way. A lot of her white friends began to DM me and were trying to stoke a fire. They were like, oh, yeah, she said some really terrible stuff about me, but look what she said about you. That's so racist. Are you really going to stand for that? What are you going to do? Because I was the black woman in that space, she had used language that was racist. She was like, you know, Candice is very aggressive. And and it, it took the wind out of me, but... And I'm very thankful for this. I had an ex-friend who the friendship is null and void, but one thing her aunt said has always stuck with me. Sometimes silence can never be misquoted. If you are unsure of the temperature, just shut your mouth. Mm. And I was like, I really cottoned on quickly to what they were trying to do. I thought, oh, God, you want me to expose this. You want me to walk out banging the drum and then incorrectly be perceived as that angry black woman. And I just folded in on myself. And I allowed the situation to play out the way I knew it would, that when there's a social media tussle, someone's going to, you know, blow the whistle. And the whistle was blown. I think what makes that story very layered and very interesting is at the time of this scandal, she was a working NHS midwife. Wow. You know, it's one thing to just be like, oh, a little bit of a catfight. She's a working NHS midwife going online pretending to be someone else, speaking about a black woman in a racist and derogatory fashion in a time where black women are five times more likely to die in childbirth. The question from the black community then became, at what time of day do you shrug this racism off? She was accusing you of weaponising your race, Mm, being aggressive, that you were a sex worker. I mean, it was pretty full-on stuff. Yeah. And it just kept going and it just, well, it hit a lot of the headlines, as you said. And actually, how did you then, because this is, it's when you deal with this and it comes at you and you know that this is just not right. Mm. And your aunt was it who said just, you know, sort of grace under fire, be quiet. But how was it feeling inside and how did you then connect back to your your soul and your energy to go, it's going to be all right. You will get through this. You will get through this. I am. I can't believe I'm saying this. Sitting here right now, I am so grateful for that woman's actions. There was a level of freedom I was searching for that I was never going to grant myself. It was never going to happen. I was never going to own any of my story fully. I was always going to try and, like we said, play it safe. I was always going to go just close to the line but never put a toe over. And her actions shoved me literally kicked me into a space that I thought I never wanted to occupy. And so 
there were tears, there was weight loss, there were slamming doors, there were breaking of plates, there were emails that were crafted that were never sent. There was all of that. Oh, yeah, your anger, the oh, white rage. Oh, the, the, white, the white rage. Hot rage. Yeah. Yeah. And how do I manage How do I? And another it's in th- me, it's in me. I've got to get it out, but I don't want to get it out. That this is going to become this horrendous battle and I'll lose me, I'll lose I'll my lo- so Horrible, I'll lose horrible me, I'll lose the business I've built, yeah. the brand yeah. I've built. And I've got to say, I try to say it as much as possible, I am so thankful to a group of black women who have large online spaces who literally picked up the phone and said, sit down, we've got this one. Those women were like, you shut up right now. <laughs> we will take this to where it needs to go. This, they were literally like, this is not your fight. Get yeah, in the back. Nice one. It makes me teary. I'm so grateful to that supportive energy because that helped me get through that moment. But also, like I said, I'm just really grateful. She, What she done taught me so much that needed to happen then. If not, we couldn't have this conversation now. For you to go deeply into your truth. Deeply. Go, right, here it is. Here's deeply. my life. And no one, no, no one. one can point the finger at me because I know the truth and I'm going to tell and the truth. And not just yeah. knowing the truth, owning the truth. Owning it. And not allowing people to weaponize your truth. But I think that's something, especially as women, especially as black women, that, again, you've got to be kicked into that arena. I found it, you know, I love giving you a few quotes because I knew you'd be able to take all this. <laughs> I'm like, I've got another one. What you did with that is that you actually committed to a vision that was larger than you and Mm. in your own life. And that's when you know, Mm. because it can sound arrogant. And there isn't a level of sort of not arrogance that we need to have to make change happen. But we have to have that. No, I can do this. And no, I believe this. And Mm. no, you are going to listen to this. It's deeply important. But at the same time, it's humbling. Mm. it's humbling what you're doing and what she says Lynn Twist who's a woman I've been following who's done extraordinary things looking at our planet and how we can save this and looking at the feminine power and how Mm. we can bring this into society more and more and more which is what you're talking about she says when you commit to a, a vision larger than your own life it may sound like an act of arrogance, but in actuality, it's humbling. It shapes you into the person you need to be. Mm-hmm. And it creates a clearing for your life to have meaning. Mm. That's you, isn't it? Yeah. It's also really helped me fight my ego. Of course. And accept that more often than not, that was going before me. Yes. And also accept that as my life continues to change and develop in a way that seven-year-old Candice could never have expected, it's not always my turn to speak. I can build the platform. It's not my time to be on the mic. And doing that, giving your life over to something bigger than you, gosh, you feel that multiple times a day. You do. And the ego is what we're all, you know, when we talk about ego, it's not necessarily I've got a big head. It's Mm. actually what our sense of our outward personality, what we're taught from a a child. This is who you are. This Mm -hmm. is your family. This is your name. This is what, you you know, society expects of you. And that's the outward ego. And it's having to pull back from that to go to the place of truth. Mm. One of the things that you wrote in your book, Sister, Sister, which I loved as well, at each end of each chapter, you go, what I wish I'd known. (laughs) Blimey, you'll write this every year, won't you? Let's face it. We can write one of these every year. And like, I'm 60 and I'm going, oh, I wish I'd known. I, I could still do this, you know, but I, I love this. And this is talking about the truth of friends. I think this is mm. deeply important because you are becoming best friends with the block button. And I know you're talking about it on social, but realistically, 
think who you surround yourself with. Yes. Because that is the most important thing. And it's very, very difficult when people are charming to you, especially when you're in the public eye, you've got a book out, you're influential. People want to hang with you. Mm -hmm. And it's about finding those people with the truth. And actually... It's not easy because we do want to be loved. We Most do. of all want to be loved. And it's lovely you get invited to this, yeah. that and the other. But you talk about my rules around why I block people aren't rigid. It could be as obvious as someone sending me a racial slur or me just catching the faceless profile of a new follower that makes me feel uneasy. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to, I only had this conversation the other day with a few young women. I used to stupidly wait for the person that initially made me feel uneasy to overstep the mark. And now I take the feeling at face value. So so you listen. I listen. To what's inside. And, you know, some of the greatest mistakes I've made in my life, Mm. but I'm sure yours, is when you haven't listened to that. Always. There's different things that I often follow when I know I've fallen off the path sometimes and Mm. how you connect back into your inner voice or whatever we call it. I know whether it's your soul, whether mm. it's your light or whatever. How do you take a check that you're on that right path and listen to that? I think one of the biggest things for me right now, and I, I know I sound like a broken record, it's reminding myself that if I'm in a situation where I am being looked at or regarded as mad, I'm on the right track. If I'm in a situation and I'm getting too many, yes, that's great, that's... It does make me double check with myself. For instance, my husband and I were trying to move home, bless his heart. I had the house of our dreams or something like it on my yearly vision board. And every single house that came up, he wanted to see, he wanted to put an offer on because our house was too small and it was driving him crazy. And I just stopped going to the viewings because I was like, this isn't it. And I'm finding it really hard to communicate with this very logical man who's like, but it has enough rooms and we can change this. I was like, it's not quite it. And it got to a point where he was like, you're you're sending me mad. Are you mad? This is a great house. It's a great fit. I was like, but it's not it. Went away to New York for work, came back that night. It came up on Zoopla at 2am. And I sat up like, you know, Frankenstein. I was like, this is it. This is <laughs> And he's like, shut up. I'm going to sleep. I've I've put too many offers on. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm like up at 6 a.m. trying to get an estate agent, trying to be the first one to view. Long story short, we live in that house now. And that was it. I was like, it's reminding myself that sometimes too many yeses, it's just because people want an easy ride. That's hilarious because it's exactly why you're a beautiful misfit. It's Everyone will tell you logic, reason, this is why. And you go, but I know deeply inside this isn't it. And I'm going to listen to it. But that's really powerful because we can be swayed. And I have been swayed and I'm sure you've been swayed. And every time I've been swayed, a week, two months, a year later, I've just, I've not even been able to communicate my anger with the the people who swayed me because it wasn't their fault. No. I know no better. I sit with myself Mm. and I'm like, you knew better than that. Yeah, you knew better. You You knew knew. better than that. Mm. And I look back at being, you know, a, a teen who do what teenagers do. And I think of some scenarios where very deeply, I think we possibly couldn't be having this conversation because it could have cost me my life. 
staying in a certain place, not leaving a ha- a boy's house I'm at when something's just not. And I look back on certain scenarios and I'm like, that, that voice has sometimes been the difference between being here and not. Yeah. It's just life. Like, yeah. I, I used to do, I used to take loads of drugs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then the, a night comes along where you're like, my gut yeah. was like, I'm not on that tonight. Yeah. You yeah. know? you And you just know that maybe if you had tried to override your gut, that could have been your final snort. But I would say I I was definitely in situations that we can all find ourselves in where it can go left or right. I had a great school friend, brilliant school friend, who unfortunately one night was followed home. She got dropped home by a boyfriend. She was followed home. And she was brutally murdered. She was stabbed and raped three doors down from her home. Her mum can even remember hearing the gate go so she was able to put her hand on the gate when they started to piece the story together and in an interview I remember her mum saying you know surely she would have followed her gut if something was up you know we go back to those spaces and this happened when I was like 16 17 and so maybe that was that again that was another drop for me and my friendship group where we were out being rowdy, staying out late, and all of a sudden everyone's like, no, I'll walk you home mm. or I'll make sure you get in. I remember mm. having a steaming argument with, with my best mate back then. He's like six foot seven. And I'm like, I'm going home. And we were in East London and I lived in Croydon. And he followed me at a distance all the way to Croydon, even though he lived in East London. And even though you had a terrible row. Had a terrible row. <laughs> he watched me get in and close the door. And then he went home and a few days later when we settled our differences, our friend, our school friend's name was Sally, he said, I wasn't going to let you become another Sally. I had to make sure you got home. So I think all of that ties into your instinct, to be fair. You know. So what advice would you give to people? Because, Mm. I mean, do you meditate? Yes. Yes, you do. Meditation is absolutely key, but I want to underscore that by saying it's gonna sound really really loud and I think when we first start to investigate meditation you know you go on YouTube you do your Googles I think we're met with the idea that if you haven't found inner peace or inner quiet immediately you're doing something wrong oh god mine's terrible uh, I'm still like the voice is coming in I'm like, oh, oh god say, get out of my head you, I, I think I can count on one hand in the past five years that I have tried to meditate at least three times a week where there's been absolute pin drop clarity. Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> I'm like, eh. and I think people get, they'll do it a couple of times, not hear pin drop clarity and go, I can't do it. Mm. It's not, mm. you must, must, must meditate because even the days where there's no pin drop clarity, there is an idea there is a seed. There is a me coming out of meditation and going, that's how I'm going to handle that. And even if it's not in a logical way, it's the bravery to handle a situation. So meditation, journaling. I personally like to use crystals or carry crystals. I don't think that's a necessity. I do think, though, also reading. Yes, reading huge amounts reading. and listening to great teachers. Oh, oh hugely. You know? I, Eckhart Tolle said this one thing, and I thought I'd do it. I try to do it because I sometimes like the sound of my own voice too much. And I might be in a meeting, and I want to hear my voice, and then he just says, stop, just connect. 
Mm. And you can feel it tingling in your soul. Yeah. You can go, just stop, listen, and just connect. Yeah. Just it could be for thirty seconds. Yeah. But you go back in. Mm. You go back in and you allow something just to open up and sit within yourself. And there could be all noise around you, but you connect back in. Yeah. So wonderful, wonderful tips. Wonderful tips. And the last one I would do is and I don't know if you do it, grateful each morning, wake up, thank you. Oh. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. Oh. So I've got a massive hole in my back suit. <laughs> Went dentist yesterday. Fuming, obviously, because it's really painful. She tells me there's a huge hole, it's got to come out. And I want to just be annoyed. And when I handed over my bank card to pay, in my mind, I was like, thank you. Yeah. I've got the funds to have this seen to. I live in a space where this is going to be seen to as a priority. Thank you. Thank you. In every little thing, you know, it it takes a long time with bigger situations like divorce and death. You know, with bigger situations, it takes a long time. But when you get to that point where you're able to tie that trauma or that, that tragic ending to the beauty of your timeline... Thank you, thank you, thank you. I say I say it quite often now. I wouldn't be the woman nor the writer that I am if my dad were still alive. Because I was his only child, a lot of my life, I viewed it as something to please him. And my dad, he switched careers. He then um, went down the law route. I know he wanted me to become a solicitor. And when he was alive... I was very on track to doing so. And then he died. And that took that invisible pressure out of the chat. And as sad as I am that my kids haven't met him and I miss him so deeply, there is still a tiny piece of thank you, thank you, thank you. Because him being taken out of the chat gave me the freedom to go, and now we do it my way. And now I go to my truth. Yeah. And I'm not there to make you happy, Daddy, which is truly what you shouldn't be there for. Exactly. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Little things like this. I love this. The next girl growing up learning to love her hair type 4C hair. What do you say to her? What do I say what to her? What is the type 4C hair? Explain so, to so me. I'm saying that, that that's like, like I know a it. massive Jackson 5 afro. It's the type oh, of I hair my, my daughter has. As much as I write these things and I feel the way I do about the way I look... I'm watching my daughter go through very similar struggles. Of course. Which is so hard. Not her school, but she had a hockey game against another school and she had her afro out that day and she heard, I think, like two little white boys laughing at her hair. She came home and retold the story and she done really well. She held it to a point and then she just cracked open and burst into tears. And she was like, it's my hair and I cannot change it. And the fact that someone finds it in its natural state funny is really hurtful. And also you just want to go and slap them around the head. Sorry. <laughs> totally non-PC, <laughs> but you do. You want to go or ring the mother and go, did you know? Yeah. But, but But the other thing, as you know, deep inside, this is her little journey. I know. And this is where she's going to trip. And I keep trip. trying to intercept. <laughs> and you want to intercept and go, it's going to be all right. But actually it doesn't matter how many times yeah. you tell her she's beautiful. Yeah. She's going to go, they're telling me this. And until she gets to the place where mm. they yeah. are not influencing her and she goes inside. And she will get there because yeah. she's got you. I like But that's oh. where she, you know, it's so, so 
difficult to it's stand in the wings so, and I'm watch just that. Like, no. How am I watching this? And how am I again ego? How am I watching this doing the work that I do? A part of me does sit here and think, how is this happening when black women around the world say they're inspired and confident? How is this happening in my house? You know, the ego is like, what have I done wrong? And I'm like, it's the journey. Yeah, it's non-stop. Yeah. It's the journey. What did you think to Black Lives Matter? How did you feel about that? Did you feel, well, this, this is, you know, another great step up or... It felt like a necessary step up. It didn't feel great, though. No. It felt like that level of noise was long overdue. Our entire world was on pause. So the world was quiet enough to, to see it at, as a problem all at the same time, to see racism and racial discrimination as a problem all at once. And that felt really, really powerful. But I also knew just because I'm black and you don't have to study our history deeply to know that this has happened time and time again, that it's a passing phase. And I was like, right, this is okay for now, but let's see how businesses implement change. Let's see if any laws change. Let's see how many black men don't die as the years go on. So little has changed data-wise, unfortunately. And I think it was a great time of public activism, one that I don't judge people for because I made a very public statement about falling into that trap myself. We got into a little internet doom loop of understanding that if we appear to be courageous and fighting for change, the algorithm is going to make you really loud you, you know, your words are going to get reshared millions of times and people are going to think you're doing a really great job and you're going to put your phone down and you're going to go and watch a rerun of Friends. Hmm. And even I, as a black woman, fell into that trap hmm. when I was like, so outside of the likes and the followers, how are you supporting and trying to promote change outside of a sphere where you can get a dopamine hit? I can totally understand that. And you can get a dopamine hit by having sister, sister, mm. you know, notes on things I've learned the hard way and go, wow, I've written that book. But that mm. has touched people. Yeah. So in a way, it's this balance of being a public person mm. on how I use these platforms to actually sometimes push the ego out there. So because you have to mm. in order to be that voice. Yeah. But know that I'm using it through my channel rather mm -hmm. than through just my ego. Yeah. And also, you know, often I've read the great leaders, the great sort of teachers talk about those small acts of love. If all of us just did those small acts of love, what this world would be. I know. And I think you're a little bit like me. You want them to be big. I want those big <laughs> movements to happen. And I've just, you know, sat down and gone and watched Friends after actually probably sending a really important message on yeah. social media. So sometimes it's don't bash yourself up. You're making mm. extraordinary ordinary headway. Mm. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio today. Thank you. This has been amazing. Thank yes, you. It's been very important. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening and I leave you with this. Don't you dare, having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. 
make it happen.